This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 169, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and theunlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Peter Keenan, CEO of Apex, a UK merchant-centric provider of payment services, which we'll hear more about later in the show. However, as our main topic du jour today is capital raising, perhaps the most essential skill in a growing tech business of all, it is Peter's history as a serial entrepreneur that is pertinent, he having raised capital for a total of five companies. So, as I'm quite sure that whatever your background is, you know what capital is, and you know what raising is, and therefore you know what capital raising is, there's no need for a long, waffly intro. Based on my, I was about to say intimate, but that would be the wrong word, based on my close knowledge of many founders and fintechs, all too often, capital raising can be the kind of thing that a founder would rather swap for having a challenging and difficult root canal surgery at the dentist as the more attractive of two options. So, anything that can smooth the way is most welcome. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Peter. Thank you for joining me on the show today. My pleasure, Mike. Good morning. So, we were talking about what to talk about just to kick things off, and it's not the sort of topics we were thinking of talking about, which are the ones sort of on one's mind after a thousand years of lockdown, were un-PC. And if they were, I quite like talking about un-PC things anyway. <laughs> it was more that things like Christmas, lockdown, vaccines, children, etc. were all kind of, oh no, let's not talk about that. So talking about politically correct subjects, it's very important to be equal opportunities these days and, and to be very aware of sort of people with sort of various types of handicaps. And so you... Well, to start with your handicap, which is the, I think it's kind of an emotional handicap, which is that you're an Arsenal supporter, <laughs> which is something which I'm, you know, I'm very glad to have Arsenal supporters on the, on the podcast, just to show that I'm an equal opportunities <laughs> podcast here. But I, I do have to say that secretly in my heart, I have a bit of pity for you, old boy. <laughs> well, I was deeply disturbed to find out you're an Aston Villa supporter, and obviously... <laughs> That's a privilege from God, that is. Well, having, having given us a drubbing at the Emirates, 3-0, um, I think this is also a topic that I should have said is out of bounds as well. <laughs> so, how long have you been uh, handicapped uh, in this particular way? Well, actually, Mike, it, it goes all the way back to... My days, my youth days, uh, growing up in Ireland, when as an 11-year-old, we did a school trip to, to London, the, the, the big city. And uh, I, you probably don't remember, but the Arsenal team, this is back in the early 80s, was mostly made up of Irishmen. So we got a tour around the, the stadium, a tour around the training facilities. And uh, ever since then, I've been an, uh, you know, a, a fanatical Arsenal supporter to the point where I actually ended up living in, uh, in Highbury for many years. <laughs> Brilliant. That's very dedicated. Well, I do actually remember uh, those days, although I didn't remember the racial profiling bit because in the, those days, no one really gave a damn about uh, race, which you never hear anything but that discussed these days. But I do remember Arsenal because for my sins, I was a Villa, a Villa fan in the 70s, although I haven't been there for quite some time and uh, I did drift off it. But moving to the Irish 
thing and what you did with little balls at school, as it were. I don't actually know, but I, I would have assumed that in Ireland, depending whereabouts you were, you would do something sort of more Shinty-esque than uh, football-esque, or, or, or did you do football and Shinty and other stuff like that? Or We, we, we did the whole, the whole shebang. Gaelic football, soccer, uh, hurling, rugby, you name it, the whole lot. Oh, I see. So what did you prefer? My sport was Gaelic. Is that Shinty then? Shinty, yeah. Right. Is Shinty a bad word or something? Or? Well, it's called Gaelic football, or in Ireland we, we, we call it football. So, um, ah, yeah. I see. This would probably have been the very little that would have been on the TV in the 70s, actually. I can't say I've sort of seen anything since. Right. OK, look. So... I don't want to spare you too many more blushes, and so maybe we should move on from the unfortunate uh, <laughs> Arsenal supporting and get on to the, the capital raising, actually, just to sort of come to one of your strengths rather than your uh, unfortunate weakness, which has probably lost me about 10% of the audience that are <laughs> Arsenal supporters, but I lose audience every, every week one way or another. So in terms of your career journey um, and you going around professionally panhandling uh, successfully for a number of companies, you've obviously got... Uh, a certain degree of flexibility in terms of having been through these different companies, either that or and or. It's mixed in with a certain degree of masochism, because as I say, <laughs> you know, if I meet a founder during their fundraising, I mean, one famous example, the, the company, of course, I won't mention, but listeners would know the name. I had lunch with this chap, and he was sort of very ERS-esque, actually. So much so, they actually emailed me the next day to apologise <laughs> for being so depressed at lunch. And, uh, of course, this year, I've heard of fundraisers that are going... Well, Lacquer on the show recently and their, their crowdfunding is oversubscribed. So when it goes well, it's uh, like relationships, really. Hey, the relationship's going fantastic. You know, everyone's really happy and joyful. But also I've heard, heard from one or two others um, who are finding it challenging to painful. So um, what's your background uh, in the whole thing? And, and, and how come you managed to fundraise in so many companies? Yeah, I mean, so when I first came to England, we're going back right to the early 90s. I started my career as an accountant. I trained as an accountant, funnily enough, in receiverships liquidation. So I, thought, I think that probably gave me a good grounding to, to work in startups. And then moved from there into retail, a variety of roles, ended up in general management, uh, working for Dixon's Group. And then into financial services and from there into various uh, tech startups. And along the way, I've done a mixture of what I call corporate ventures. So where I set up businesses that were funded by a corporate. I've set up businesses that were funded purely from, from VCs. I've set up businesses where the founders have put in the money. That's the, the one we're currently doing. I'm currently doing. Yeah, it's, it's been a real mixed bag. But uh, and certain, certain threads sort of permeate the whole thing that, that bring a commonality to each of the different, uh, the different experiences that I had in, in all of them. Oh, excellent. Well, it was your broad experience in that context, both working in different sectors, but also having had the different types of funding, which made it uh, appealing to discuss this subject. I mean, in my book, there's a, a chapter on capital raising. And the one point I try to get over is that it's not as linear as you might think by reading kind of press articles or stuff like that, which is, you know, friends and family, you do a seed, a seed of crowdfunding or something, mumble, mumble, venture capital, mumble, mumble, IPO. There are different types of capital and different types of capital provider, which really suit different types of, of business. It's more of sort of a 2D chart, as it were, than a sort of simple sort of linear progress. But let's start right at the beginning, then let's dive into the main course, because there are many ways of doing it. So if you and I have an idea after the podcast, I go, hey, yeah, 
let's let's set that up tomorrow and we do it well the uncapital raising bit starts with sort of you and I do some time for free just to get the idea up and and da 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 and then at some point you need some money in terms of actual sort of cash coming in so how does that process work and and then in terms of you probably get a few employees and they say hey this is a fantastic idea peter and mike you know this is going to go gangbusters you'll be worth a trillion we want part of the action so right from you know almost when you haven't sort of raised capital as such uh, you've already got this question of how much of a percentage should the founders take how much the employees take uh, and as I may or may not have mentioned before in my first incarnation in 1983 in Bath in a um, what you now call a, a tech startup employees like me I was number 12 I left 18 months later as number 55 and then a little bit later it was well over 100 so it grew very rapidly I was just a new graduate and I was given a small slug of equity uh, at the beginning but by the time I left and this was a mere 18 months my chunk of equity was higher than mid-level yeah. management who'd come in outside because the share price had grown so much. Now, that was fine for me as a new graduate, but clearly uh, with hindsight, the scheme wasn't particularly brilliantly designed. And, and to put this into context for most of the audience who probably be sort of rather younger than I, back in the early 80s, there wasn't really much in terms of fundraising going on, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there was three I around and, and that was about it. So, uh, and nor was the internet, nor could you read blogs and all this kind of stuff. So amateur errors were easy to make. And I just mentioned that as, a, as an anecdote of, of, of one kind of amateur errors. Um, but yes, so let's kick off, Peter, with um, what happens right at the beginning, uh, almost before you're doing sort of fundraisings, because it's uh, quite important to get these parameters right, because they can actually condition <laughs> the next 10 years. No, that's, exa- that's exactly right. Well, look, if I, g- if I give you some examples, you know, maybe if I pick my latest business that I'm currently founder and CEO of, right at the start, there was three of us. There was myself as the CEO, a CTO, and uh, a head of sales, effectively, a head of sales and partnerships. And between the three of us, we, we split the equity between us. And we worked initially for no salary, whilst we, and in, in the very early stages, what you're doing is you're effectively using your network, going out, talking to people with, about your idea about why you think your, uh, your idea and your vision has a place in the market, what you want to build, how long it's going to take, roughly what it's going to cost, and what, a, what you know, high-level financials, and the sort of clients you want to target, and so on and so forth. And depending on the feedback you get, you refine your plan, and then you start to get, a, get momentum that, you know what, we're onto something here, or nah, there's just too many, too many ifs, buts, and maybes, too, too many barriers, too many things we hadn't thought about, or we need to pivot, or we need to change, or we need to adjust. And then when you get to a point where you believe you've got a plan that's, that's workable, you then take it out to, to potential investors. And you know, the e, I say the easier investors initially are clearly friends and family, which is what we did. And effectively, they're investing in you. Yeah, they, they know what you're capable of. They know your capability. They know your track record. And particularly here in the UK, with the various government incentives, you know, SEIS and EIS, these are, for those of you not in the UK listening in, these are very advantageous tax schemes whereby anybody investing in early stage companies can claim back as much as 50% of the investment in tax rebates. So that, that really makes the whole friends and family piece, particularly if you've got uh, you know, enough high net worths or enough high taxpayers. In the current uh, business, we went out and raised initially £300,000 and that was enough to keep us going for six months. All of us worked for no salary for six months. Um, the, the fancy name for that is sweat equity. While we're building up the business and getting traction, getting our first customers, getting the first uh, demo of the product, and then you know sparingly investing or spending our three hundred thousand pounds, so that we we can 
get to the next milestone so we can then do the next raise. But the, the way I've always approached it is, you know, agreeing what these key milestones are and making sure that you're going to hit them. And once you hit the milestones, then the next raise becomes that much easier. They're never easy. And as you, as you alluded to, Mike, in your introduction, but getting these critical milestones achieved, whether it's the amount of revenue you're earning, the amount of customers you've got live on your platform, the amount of markets you've opened up, or the product you've built, or to be able to demonstrate the product that you've built, or a, a letter of undertaking or an LOI from a, a potential client, getting these key milestones in place all becomes and gives future investors confidence that what you're building is going to have a market and it ultimately is going to drive a revenue stream uh, further down the track. And in terms of doing that, how on earth does one approach the kind of, I've never watched it, but I've heard of Dragon's Den, uh, the, the uh, thing that's sort of central to that, which is that people turn up uh, and want to bung you a chunk of money uh, in return for a percentage. Now, when you're further down the track, you've got revenue and predictions and, and blah, blah, blah. At the beginning, as you say, you haven't got a number of that. You've got a number of milestones and a plan. And in a sense, it's almost... Well, let me, let me just give the devil's advocate. It's kind of an arbitrary number. Now you can, you can tell me how you, it's not an arbitrary number, where, where it comes from. But to give you one scenario there that I heard about recently, which is that uh, unscrupulous angels will turn up and offer you, you know, 100 grand or something for a chunk of your company, for too much of it, your, or your company, if you're a sort of naive first-time founder especially, knowing that they're not going to be there for the ride, but that when a VC comes along, they'll want to clear up the cap table, i.e. who owns chunks of the thing, and they will buy them out at some crazy price. So let's just deal with that in two sections. Firstly, when you go around, and, and let's not talk about your, your current example, if you don't want to, but let's see, our new venture tomorrow is going super well, and by Christmas, we think, oh, we need 100 grand just to sort of tide us over. So we, we ask for 100 grand from friends and family, and we say, hey, you get 0.01% of the equity, or you get 50% of yeah, the equity, yeah, yeah. or some number in the middle. Um, and then secondly, the, 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 the naughty angels who exploit the founders who don't really understand that calculation, and they get far too much equity. So the way, the way I've approached this, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and what... What the professionals will tell you, good investors will want to make sure that the founders have sufficient skin in the game. And a lot of the later stage VCs uh, and investors will look at the cap table, as you say, and say, the founders that we're buying into here, have they got enough? Do they still own enough of this company? Or have they given away too much equity early on? Because actually, they, for them, that will be a red flag. And I can tell you about some of the trials and tribulations we have had. It hasn't all been plain sailing. And when the going gets tough, you want your founders, you want the people who are running the company to be so invested in it and have a significant enough share of it that they're going to stick around and not head for the hills. Because guess what? Any one of us back in the early days, we could have gone and worked in other businesses, corporate businesses, at probably three, four times the salary we were taking out of the startup. And that is not unusual. And in fact, one of the key indicators a lot of the investors look for is making sure that the founders are not taking too much salary out of the business, even as you get into later stage, like Series B, Series C rounds, because they want to make sure that the founders, even with the equity they own, that they have a vested interest in making sure that the company is successful, because it's only by being the, the company being successful that they're going to be able to earn a reasonable salary as well. Now, to answer your question directly about how do you avoid being fleeced in the early stages? You've got to be quite robust and you've got to go and create competition and you've got to talk to many angels. I mean, the rounds we've done in the early days, we would go out and talk to 30, 40, 50 different angel investors. We would always have a view as to what, what the business is worth 
And as you say, quite rightly say, it's, it's based on a PowerPoint presentation because we don't actually have anything else. We don't have a product, we've got an idea, but what you're valuing is your idea, your vision, your background, your experience, your track record. And you know, we, the current business, I mean, we just picked a number. We said, we believe it's worth 3 million. We want to raise 300,000. There you go. That's, that's the valuation. And this is how much equity is up for grabs. And we got enough interest in the early days that we were able to, 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 to sell that much equity. And then it, it got easier after that. Once you establish the, the, the initial marker, then you look for growth after that. Every year you're looking for at least 100% growth in terms of the company valuation, if not more. And it becomes easier in terms of being able to point to the milestones that you've delivered in the last 12 months or haven't delivered in the last 12 months. We had one round where we had, a, we had a tough year. One of our customers, one of our clients got delayed launching. Our revenues didn't grow as much as we, we had planned. And we ended up with a round that was the same valuation as the previous round, again, which is not unusual. But the trick is not to give away, as you say, Mike, not to give away too much too early. Yes, and it's interesting how you describe the process there because one of the things I didn't say in my intro, but I knew they would come out of the conversation, which is that <laughs> it's this kind of there aren't really any secrets in life you know if you say hey Mike I'm not fit how do I get fit well I'm the wrong person to ask but uh, let's say I knew I'd say well there's no secret Peter you've got to put the effort in mate you've got to put the hours in day yeah. in day out week in week out and so one of the non-secret secrets to fundraising is actually I was about to say shoe leather but uh, that's been banned these days you're all supposed to sit at home but I guess it's sort of zoom hours you need to do your million zoom hours and and all that kind of stuff. And to that extent, hearing you is remarkably like what actually happens in the most grown up. And I've mentioned the uh, Gazprom flotation many times before because it's inked on my memory. One of the biggest flotations ever in the, in the 90s that, um, that we led. Because the process you're talking about is pretty much the same. Schematically, it's identical to what happens to the largest flotations in the world, which is that you've got some company, goodness knows what Gazprom's worth. I mean, how do we know? We've got somebody who does, does a model, basically a PowerPoint, you know, it's a, it's a spreadsheet, same bloody thing. They come up with some sort of numbers. And then the equity guys speak to the whole marketplace. You know, the, the, the salesmen are on the phone, legal in general, what do you think? You know, blah, 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 go around the market. And then the pricing information comes back from the market. Now you have to lead the market. You have to go out and say, well, I think this is 350p or whatever. And the market comes back and you, you know, for the sake of argument, you call your 50 angels and they all go, get out of here. <laughs> That's a joke kind of stuff. Or all 50 angels tear your arm off. It's a bit like trying to flog your house. How do you know what your house is worth? Well, you have a bit of a guess. Someone comes around and says, maybe this. You put it on the market and you've got 10 offers in the first day. Go, oh, shit, that's a bit too low. Or nobody comes for three months and you think, oh, it's a bit too high. So in a sense, I think what you're saying is you try and turn it into a market using the, using the shoe leather. That's exactly right. And the thing I would add to that, Mike, is having done this a few times, going in cold to angels is very hard. And where we've had them, so, you know, connecting with them on LinkedIn or you know, on Twitter and then just trying to pitch your business to someone you, you haven't been introduced to. But where we've had tremendous success is where we, through our network, where we know an angel investor and then they recommend us to one of their colleagues who then recommends us to one of their colleagues. I would say of all the angel investors we've, we've got on our cap table, 70, 80% of them have come from referrals through our network, through being recommended by people who understand the industry. This is the other way it works, because angel investors invest typically across a whole host of different industries. And they'll look at a business like ours, we're in the payments business, Mike, as you know, and they'll, they'll say, well, John Smith, 
he's the guy who understands payments in our little investor community, right? Go and get John to go and meet the guys, kick the tires, you know, test it, see if the, see see if what they're building is is interesting, and if it gets the stamp approval, then John recommends it to all his buddies who are in the group. That that's that's the way we found tremendous success with uh, with the angels. But trying to pitch a business to an angel who doesn't really understand your sector, hasn't really worked in it. I honestly think you're wasting your time because they're always going to be on the back foot because they don't really understand what, what it is you're about. And nine times out of ten, what you're trying to do is disrupt a sector they don't really understand. So it's get an angel who really understands your business, your area. Ideally, get an introduction to them from someone that they trust and know. And then I think you're away to the races. Yes. Yeah, so there's um, a couple of things there. One which leaps out to me, which is a point I've been making various blogs recently, which is that even if you're an early stage company, and even if you don't have a proper formal board kind of stuff, then you do need to accumulate around you, if you're a first time founder, uh, people with experience. And one of the most useful things you can have on your board at any stage, right up to the IPO stage, is somebody on the board who's been there or done it, or an advisory director or whatever you want to call it. So for the sake of argument, and I'm not trying to get you uh, to have a thousand posts on uh, messages on LinkedIn, but you know, if you're a naive founder, then having somebody such as yourself who's done it the process many times before is really invaluable rather than just reading a few blog posts and trying to work it out because there's nothing like experience. And the other point which leaps out at me, which it's, you know, sounds a little bit unfair, but it's not because you, know, you earn this through sweat and blood, which is that as a serial entrepreneur, it gets easier and easier because you've been through it before. It's never easy, but you've been through the process. And, and an analogy which strikes me is if you go back to school when you never had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, the first time it's really kind of tough because you don't know what you're doing, trying to sort of chat up the opposite sex and all that kind of stuff, all the same sex these days. And it's quite hard. Give it a few decades and the, the process gets easier. You've been through it before. You know what it, what it feels like and you know how to respond. So um, just on the employees point, because it's a slight sort of um, tangent, but it is an important one. And we could certainly do a whole podcast on employee share schemes and all that kind of jazz. Are there one or two points that sort of leap out there in terms of you get some, you know, Mike Balleman who's a superstar, blah, 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 and you graduate, but you give them a millionth of a percent because that's what you know to do. Or, you know, you need a new, I don't know, CTO or something like that. And he wants 10% of your company. I mean, again, we've got this sort of uh, random parameter thing. I mean, what are the sort of your, your key takeaways just in, in brief? on the employee front? Oh yeah, well, okay. very simply, I mean, having your employees participate in the equity is absolutely essential. I mean, the only way, well, I say the only, it's not the only way, but one of the key ways we're able to attract the talent that we've got is that, you know, I, I, I've got people in my business now, we're a team now of 70, and of the seven, we've got a management team, there's five of us, and if I take the management team of the next layer down, we're probably talking 20 people, all of whom have got equity in the business. Part of our uh, EMI scheme, Employee Management Incentive Scheme. Without that, I, I would not be able to attract the sort of talent that I've got. Because I'm asking them to come and work for us, a, a business that's four years old, give up your jobs in global schemes, Visa, MasterCard, large you know, billion dollar companies, and come and work for a business that's four years old on the promise that you're going to get a reasonable stake in the business and we're on a mission to increase the value of the business, you know, 10, 20x over the next number of years, however many years in the future. That's what we sell to the team. And it's not just the only thing we sell, but it's an important tool as a founder that I have got. But it's not just about attracting, it's attracting and retaining the team. But it's also a great way to align 
the whole management team because everybody's got a stake in the business, th th those top two layers. So any real debate that we have or where we have disagreements, at the end of the day, which is the route that's going to drive the, the shareholder value becomes one of the key, not the only, but one, one of the key determining factors as to which route we go. And because we're all aligned behind that single measure, it makes, not all the time, but it makes making those thorny decisions about which way to go. Do we invest in this product or that product? Do we go into that market or this market? Should we prioritize getting this client live over that client? You know, I find it just gets politics out of the way and it makes those type of decisions much easier. I mean, I, I, another analogy I'd use, Mike, I think it was Matthew Pinson, one of the big Olympic oarsmen, talk about this when he was uh, rowing with Steve Redgrave back in, the, back in the 80s and 90s. And then he got moved up to the four or the eight and they were arguing over training regime and you know, how often they should train. And they said they had one simple rule. Does it make the boat go faster? Is what we're doing, changing our diet, changing our training, is it going to make the boat go faster? If it's a yes, then they do it. If it's a no, then they don't do it. And in a way, having the management team and the employees part of the EMI scheme is kind of that philosophy. It brings that sort of focus on that single measure. Uh, now, it's got to be balanced clearly because it's not all about driving shareholder value. You've got to drive the customer experience. You've got to have a balanced, a balanced approach. But we use other levers in order to make sure that's in place as well. Yes, and I was asked uh, recently, actually, by a small business that I know nowhere near, Tech World, about this kind of stuff. They were trying to attract a CMO and, and know how much do they give him, blah, 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 as a percentage of equity. Uh, and my simple advice was, look, you're going to need lawyers for all those documents <laughs> and you've got, you've got accountants. Start by speaking to those guys because they're the ones who draft all this stuff up and they, you, know, you can get a, get a steer from them. So everything's going brilliantly well. We then get to institutional capital of, of one sort or another, sort of venture capital or corporate venture capital, or all, all these kind of things up to strategic partners. And I, I think this is the point at which it does diverge. So actually, again, I've spoken to another small business recently, nothing to do with tech, a local one, and they've got one uh, outlet they're doing well in, in lockdown, funnily enough. And they were thinking of expanding to three and I was just chatting to them about fundraising and blah, 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 and boards and advisors and, and all this kind of jazz, just chit-chatting. And it occurred to me that... Uh, the whole categories of business, which are utterly neglected by the media or, or, or the tech media, which live in a totally different world, which is that they don't really need to raise tons of capital. Because, and I, I was thinking about this a lot, and I think it comes down to two things. The, the first is that a lot of these businesses, small businesses, are profitable from day one. You know, they, they spend a bit of money, but actually they're selling something for more than they buy it. And secondly, they're not trying to scale massively and suddenly go all over the country or all over the the world. So, and that, re that related to me, a blog I'd read by a, a VC actually, or a newsletter, a, a VC's newsletter, which was saying, well, actually venture capital is only relevant to certain categories of business. To the rest, you, don't, you d shouldn't be wanting venture capital. You know, you need to be wanting to grow super fast and, and really go somewhere and you want the rocket fuel to get you up there. And that's the kind of business. If you're not one of those, don't just go to the, the VCs because it, it won't, it's like a circle and a square. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it is bizarre, but actually understanding how VCs work is really important. And this, this was eye-opening for me in the early days. I mean, a typical VC fund, you know, could be, and they vary and they're getting bigger, but you know, the small end of it will be $50 million. The large end could be up, could even go up to 250, maybe $300 million. They'll do typically anywhere between 20 and 40 investments. 
And of that 20 to 40 investments, probably a third will be outright failures. They'll, they'll just go bust after the, after the investment. They'll get nowhere. A third will, will plot along. They won't grow significantly. They'll do okay. And a third will, will show early promise. But the way the VCs work, in the fund, they will be looking for one or two investments that will return the entire fund. So they'll be looking for out of the 20 or 30 investments they make, they'll be looking for that one golden nugget that's going to return the 100, 200 million that the, the original fund uh, was raised for. And then whatever else they get from the remaining amount of investments is the profit of the fund. That's kind of the model. So what that says is it's very difficult for the VCs to pick the winners early on because you know, they will all tell you every fund has their fair share of, of investments that just simply haven't worked. And it's not because the founders weren't right or the, the idea wasn't right. There's, there's so many variables involved in being successful, whether it's what, how your competitors react, what's happened in the environment. Nobody planned for COVID there. Oh dear, I mentioned it. You know, there's so many external factors that can blow a business off, off, off course. Now, that's, that's just kind of the way the, the industry's grown up. And you're absolutely right. The VCs are certainly the ones I've spoken to. They've only been interested in investing in those businesses that are there to really grow, you know, 50, 100% a year. Otherwise, they're just not going to be interested because you're not going to be one of those businesses that can return the fund. Right. So in terms of the fit, I think we've segmented that down. There are other types of institutional capital provider as a whole, as well as we've touched on the show before, uh, more patient VC money, but put the VC to one side. So in terms of institutional funds, I mean, you can raise money from pension funds and crikey, there's an infinite number of institutions that actually have got money to invest in stuff. Yeah, I mean, but for, for startups, it really is the venture funds are, are really the only option when it comes to institutional money. I mean, the, the other two areas are whether you take money from strategic partners. So an example of that in my my. Um, payments business might be, you know, do I go to one of the big schemes and see if they want to invest or PayPal or one of the big US tech businesses that's, that's awash with, with, with cash. I mean, there's positives and negatives with that. Positives are it gives you credibility if, if they're investing. They obviously see that you're onto something. The negatives are, does it preclude some of your market because they see you getting into bed with a potential competitor. So the, the law of unintended consequences kicks, kicks in. And I think when you take strategic money, you just got to work through what are the pros and cons of doing it. Yes. And the other scenario I've come across on this one, which is that a business may get a, an offer from a sort of a mega company, I don't know, JP Morgan, MasterCard, Visa, HSBC, something like this. And they may have the fear that oh my God, I'm getting in, into bed with a 10-ton gorilla. I'm not going to have much sort of say in this kind of stuff. But the opposite um, problem, which does arise actually, which is that a lot of these businesses will not want to consolidate you in the balance sheet and therefore they won't want to be seen to have management control. And your 10-ton gorilla has got a lot, lot of other things going on in its life. So actually one of the problems can be you get a strategic partner, but you've got to keep your 10-ton gorilla interested in you. But that's exactly right. Or you've taken the money from the 10-ton gorilla in the expectation that they're going to introduce you to their internal teams and you can get traction with them potentially as a customer. And then you find two years in, nothing's happened because they can't get various departments to agree that it's the right thing to do. But their venture arm is gung-ho saying this, is, this has come from on high. And getting traction with these large corporates is very, very difficult. Just because you get money from them doesn't mean you're going to get any traction with them as a, as a potential customer or as a potential channel partner, as a potential, potential sales route. I've seen that happen many times. Yes, exactly. So I think with all these kind of people, it actually also applies to some angels as well. It's a question that when one's doing a fundraising, most 
to the time you're told that you're going to get money plus. VCs will always say, oh, it's not just the money we're bringing, it's all our contacts, our savoir-faire and connections and blah, blah, blah. In the same way, you, you get into bed with uh, Visa, you think, oh, wow, Visa's got all this, and you say their venture team is sort of gung-ho and blah, blah, blah. Inevitably, as in life, the money comes. Sometimes it doesn't, but let's put that to one side. I've heard of fails from you know, all sorts of money which just doesn't arrive on the day. Uh, but anyway, put that one to one side. So the money comes, but then there's the question of, ah, all the extra, you know, you chose this VC because they're going to do blah, blah, blah. Unsurprisingly, the general report is that uh, they didn't always, shall we say, understate what they were bringing in the first place and, and equally in one's own mind, one didn't sort of uh, underimagine what was going to happen. So just very briefly, because we do live in a state socialist world now increasingly around the world, not to mention the Great Reset, Kofka, off, where the government is everything and the government's busy spending taxpayers' future money on, on all sorts of schemes. And again, it's a huge thing in itself uh, about uh, just taking the, the UK, what's happening in the UK in terms of the, the state spending and involvement um, in businesses and all that. But government or in, indeed uh, EU schemes are a uh, something that shouldn't be neglected in terms of a, a source of funds, uh, as I say, increasingly. Well, exactly. I mean, for a very early stage, the, the tax breaks for angel investors are phenomenal in the UK and different countries have got different, different schemes. Well, frankly, without that, the angel, the angel investments, I think, would probably drop by about 50, 60, 70 percent. It, it's, it's that significant. Clearly, governments around the world see the startup scene as crucial to driving future economic growth. I mean, there's plenty of data to prove that that is the case. And you know, we've been successful in, in applying for various government grants to help with innovation. What I would just say, though, and just caution, the amount of time you have to put in to apply for the grants and make sure you've completed everything accurately and correctly, hit all the deadlines and so on and so forth. There has been times where I do question the amount of effort that we've put in. Has it been worth the effort? Um, and uh, I'm sort of coming down on the, on, the, on the side of, yes, it has, but be prepared for a lot of work to get it over the line. That's all I'll say. Yes, a chum of mine, talking about totally left-field things, is setting up a certain type, shall I say, of wildlife reserve. It's ongoing, so I can't mention it, in a certain country in Europe. And they have been funded quite a lot by EU grants. And the, to get the EU grant, you need, apparently, to pay somebody in Brussels or whatever, who's the sort of the, 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 the fixer who makes it happen and all that kind of jazz. But the process can be like 18 months or something like that. So, you know, the, the business has been getting funding from the EU, but one does question whether the time it's taken her has been worth it. Anyway, so that's the takeaway point on that, which is uh, definitely in the current world, don't neglect the idea of government schemes, all this kind of stuff, but equally be aware that the real politic is that you have to trade off the time for money aspect. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope you've got some ideas for fundraising if you've never fundraised before and a bit better idea of the land. And if you have fundraised before, I hope one or two of Peter's stories have given you a little bit of an insight into things that you'd undervalued. I'd also like to thank my brand partners for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. The unlistedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. Okay, Peter, so you've been a very good guest on my original podcast criteria, which sort of slightly got sort of uh, softened over time, which is that uh, the topic should be uh, should be a topic. And, and uh, most guests manage to slip in their company one way or another a, a few times. But I don't think you've actually explained anything about Apex. So could you kindly then give a the listeners a few minutes on Apex and, and what sort of being merchant-centric global payments API mumble-mumble means in uh, rather more clear terms than that. Thank you, Mike. So we're Apex Global. We're a payment gateway that connects large global e-commerce businesses into multiple payment acquirers. 
we effectively have what we call a payment orchestration layer. We're completely independent of any acquirer. We're connected into over 100 acquirers around the world. And we're able to route transactions to different acquirers depending on what's the right acquirer to, for that transaction. What this means for our clients is they're able to lower their payment acceptance costs by optimizing interchange and scheme fees, and at the same time, increase conversion rates. So they get a higher acceptance rate because we'll introduce the right acquirer for that particular market. We really want to talk to clients in the e-commerce space that operate in at least five international markets. That's where we believe our platform can add really significant value. We can improve conversion rates by about 5% and lower your costs by about 20%. So if there's anybody out there who fits that bill, please get in touch. I'd love to talk to you. And in simple terms, for those people who don't understand the market in detail, as I mentioned before, one of my great master plans is the uh, London FinTech podcast hoodies, which I'm hoping to, to roll out around the world. It's going to be a great strategic success. So let's say in a year's time, I'm in, um, I'm in 10 markets and I'm doing, oh, let's, let's, let's not be too optimistic, you know, $100 million per annum turnover in, in hoodies. And I remember, Peter, and I remember Apex Global, and I, I call you and say, oh yeah, Peter, can I have your thing? What exactly is your thing? I mean, you know, I've got all my websites, I've got the businesses printing and distributing hoodies around the world. What was the thing that actually I get from you? So what you get from me is, you know when you go, when you go to the checkout on your website or on your mobile phone and you type in your, your card or your PayPal, or if, depending on which country you're in, it, it could be a different payment type. They vary around the world. What we provide is that payment page, and then we route the transaction to the acquiring banks in those local areas, in those local um, jurisdictions. We provide then all the reporting and reconciliation at the back end to mean that your finances are much easier to keep on top of because a lot of the complexity, particularly for international businesses, is in the back end. Absolutely. And just to give uh, listeners a feel of roughly sort of how large you are at the moment, how many staff you've got? I think you're between India and, and uh, London, aren't you? We're head office London. Uh, we've got uh, 30 people here based in London and we've got another 45 in India. So 75 altogether. And you have been going for how many years? We started in just um, quarter four, 2016. So just, uh, just up over four years. So that's pretty good going. Right. OK, well, thank you very much for that, Peter. <laughs> I was feeling pessimistic this morning, uh, having read the news, which is always a mistake. And I was thinking that my kind of spare time passion, which is to try and sort of support small businesses more, more broadly, uh, it's a bit like trying to sort of support support soldiers in the trenches in the First World War at the moment in the, in the UK, given the, the, how they're just really sort of industrially slaughtered. But uh, we have to remain optimistic. And as you say, small businesses around the world are a major source of employment, innovation and everything else. And fundraising is absolutely a core skill. And as well as talking to current entrepreneurs, I think one of the things I'm very keen when I get a chance on the show like this to, is to talk about a broader topic, which is that one of the really important things is having some idea before you start something, you know, so all these people who are working in big co's at the moment, and they may in one year, two years, three years, five years time, actually go off and, and do stuff. I think one of the amazing things about being a founder of a business that uh, sort of every founder that's been on the show has been very modest about, which is how you absolutely have to do everything on day one. And you know, you can imagine an organogram with sort of 100 boxes in it. And on day one, if it's you, or it's you and your mate, the two of you have, have written your name in everything from CMO, sales, marketing, uh, you name it. So the more education, the better. So I think, thank you for that, Peter. It's been very interesting. I like the experience anecdotes and I wish you every success in the future with Apex Global. Thank you very much, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, 
get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance with me.